You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 149 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Last week, we looked at the engagement at Front Royal and Stonewall Jackson's victory there on Friday, May 23, 1862. At a cost of 36 killed and wounded, Jackson had inflicted 773 casualties on the Federals, of which 691 were prisoners of war. The Confederates had taken a large amount of quartermaster and commissary stores at Front Royal and had come away with two fine parrot rifle guns. Most importantly, though, Stonewall had turned Banks' flank and opened the way to Winchester. That night, as Nathaniel Banks, over in Strasburg, tried to make sense of what had happened on his flank, Stonewall Jackson, after his victory at Front Royal, had an opportunity to achieve that most elusive of Civil War tasks, the complete destruction of an enemy force. With his victory at Front Royal, Jackson had neatly turned Nathaniel Banks' flank, but now to catch and destroy Banks, Stonewall would need to wring every bit out of the advantage he had won on May 23rd. Students of the Valley Campaign, therefore, pay particular attention to the events of the next day, Saturday, May 24th. They pay particular attention to the events of that Saturday because what happened on that day would determine whether Stonewall would be able to catch and destroy Banks. The arena in which Jackson opposed Nathaniel Banks on that Saturday has been called the Operational Triangle. If you look at a map, you can find Front Royal, Strasburg, and Winchester, and clearly see that the Triangle was a road network. Winchester represented the apex of the Triangle, Strasburg the western base, and Front Royal the eastern. On the western side of the triangle was the excellent, macadamized Valley Turnpike that ran 18 miles from Strasburg to Winchester. On the eastern side of the triangle was the Front Royal Winchester Turnpike, a good but curvy macadamized road stretching 19 miles between the two towns. Then the base of the triangle was about 13 miles across, from Front Royal to Strasburg, a winding dirt road as well as the Manassas Gap Railroad, linked Front Royal and Strasburg. As Rich said, you'll be able to clearly see the operational triangle if you look at a map, but even without a map, you can still easily picture it in your mind's eye by imagining a triangle with Winchester at the top, or northern point, 
Then the left, or western point, is Strasburg, and the right, or eastern point, is Front Royal. Jackson and Ewell and the Confederates are at Front Royal, while Nathaniel Banks and the Federals are at Strasburg. Exactly. And on Friday night, after his victory at Front Royal, Stonewall Jackson no doubt pondered the triangle and the road network that we just described, since it was the key to intercepting Banks' force. Jackson could see the enemy commander had several options open to him. One of them, that Banks would withdraw west into the Allegheny Mountains to try to link up with John C. Fremont, could almost certainly be safely ruled out. Retreating into the rugged mountains meant Banks would not only have to abandon his supply train, but also cut himself off from his line of communications, which ran north to Winchester and then on down the valley to the Potomac. A second choice also seemed just as unlikely, for Jackson could hardly imagine that even Nathaniel Banks would be so obliging as to simply sit tight at Strasburg and wait to be destroyed. That left two realistic possibilities. Banks could make a dash for Winchester, or, if Jackson left Front Royal unguarded and made his own rush for Winchester, then there was the possibility that Banks would slip his troops behind the Confederates, pass through Front Royal, and cross the Blue Ridge, headed east to link up with Irvin McDowell at Fredericksburg. Jackson considered the third possibility, Banks making a dash for Winchester, the most likely, but Stonewall couldn't afford to ignore the fourth option, that if Stonewall committed himself to his own run for Winchester, then Banks would slip in behind him, passing through Front Royal, headed east to link up with McDowell. To solve this dilemma, Jackson devised a plan. It hinged on a road, the Chapel Road, that cut across the triangle, running diagonally from the Front Royal Winchester Road at Cedarville to the Valley Turnpike at Middletown, five miles north of Strasburg. If Banks moved toward Winchester, Jackson could use the Chapel Road to slice across the triangle and strike the vulnerable Federal Column while it was passing through Middletown. However, until Stonewall received news confirming that Banks was indeed making a dash down the valley pike for Winchester, he would have to hold the bulk of his army near enough to Front Royal to cut off Banks in case the Federals tried to escape that way. Orders were issued accordingly. Turner Ashby's cavalry scouts would keep an eye on the Strasburg Front Royal Road, at the same time, two regiments of Yule's cavalry under George H. Stewart were sent cross-country toward Newtown, five miles north of Middletown, to watch for signs that the enemy was beginning to retreat down the valley turnpike. Meanwhile, Yule was to start the greater part of his infantry marching toward Winchester, but halt them before they got too far out of reach. The rest of Jackson's army, including Richard Taylor's Louisiana Brigade, would just come up to Cedarville and halt there, awaiting further developments. Once they reached Cedarville, the men, most of whom had marched 80 miles over the past four days, fell out and lazed along the roadside. At 11 a.m., a courier galloped up and burst upon that drowsy scene with the news so eagerly anticipated by Stonewall Jackson. The message was from George Stewart, whose troopers had arrived at Newtown, where they found the Valley Turnpike packed with Federal supply wagons, all fleeing down the road toward Winchester.
In his book Shenandoah, 1862, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, Peter Cousins writes, quote, Nathaniel Banks had his shortcomings as a military commander, but lack of nerve was not among them. At a moment when many a man would have panicked, on the night of May 23rd, Banks kept his head, sifting calmly through fragmentary and sometimes contradictory information. The first word from Front Royal reached Banks shortly after 4 p.m. News continued to trickle in. None of these reports, either separately or in the aggregate, were conclusive. Yet prudence dictated that Banks, exposed as he was at Strasbourg, assume the worst and make preparations accordingly. Notwithstanding later claims to the contrary, that is exactly what Banks did. Wagon trains started for Winchester around 10 p.m. Regiments encamped south of Strasbourg were ordered to pack their trains and fall back into town, and regimental trains began rolling out of Strasbourg at midnight. Also at midnight, the first reliable confirmation of the disaster at Front Royal reached Banks' headquarters. End quote. Prudently, Banks had sent his supply train rolling northward during the night, but barely half of the wagons had moved out of Strasbourg by daybreak, and those vehicles already stretched for a length of seven miles down the valley turnpike. Because Strasbourg had served as a supply depot, Banks found himself burdened with more than 500 wagons, many times the number usually associated with the force his size. Then there was the issue of how to remove all of the sick and wounded at Strasbourg. Seventy-eight men were loaded into 20 ambulances to cart them to Winchester, but 450 other sick and wounded men kept pace as best they could alongside the ambulances. Contributing to the confusion and sense of impending disaster was the large number of contraband and their families who took flight along with the retreating Federals. A lieutenant in a Connecticut regiment said, Quote, there were half as many Negroes as soldiers, some drivers and some refugees, wagons loaded with Negro women and children, mess kettles, pans, and chickens. Then there were droves of loose horses, branded U.S., going along independently, and hundreds of beef cattle belonging to the commissary department, ambulances with sick, all hurrying in one direction. Throughout the hours of darkness, as Friday night turned into Saturday morning, Banks' leading wagons rolled on their slow journey down the Valley Pike to Winchester. After daybreak, in the mid-morning hours of Saturday, May 24th, as the first vehicles approached the southern outskirts of Winchester, the column of wagons stretched fully 15 miles back along the turnpike. It wasn't until a quarter past nine that morning that Banks' soldiers began their march out of Strasbourg, following the Army's trains and fleeing refugees northward. At 11 o'clock that morning, when that courier galloped up and brought Stonewall the first definite news that the Yankees were fleeing down the Valley Pike toward Winchester, the man told Jackson that General Stewart had reached Newtown at about 10 a.m. to find the turnpike packed with wagons. He had attacked, said the courier, and was raising hell with the enemy trains. But in fact, although Stewart had confirmed the direction of Banks' retreat, he had missed a golden opportunity to stop it and destroy much of the federal trains. Brigadier General George H. Stewart was no relation to Jeb Stewart, 
In fact, this Stewart's last name was spelled S-T-E-U-A-R-T. He was a Marylander with more political influence than military skill, and he'd come to the Shenandoah Valley with special orders from Richmond to organize an all-Maryland brigade. To fulfill his assignment, he was recently promoted, but there weren't enough Maryland units in the valley to actually form a brigade. So for a short while, Stuart had been a general without a command befitting his rank, until after Front Royal, he was given Yule's cavalry. In his book, Three Days in the Shenandoah, Stonewall Jackson at Front Royal in Winchester, Gary Eckelbarger explains how, quote, General Stewart and his cavalry approached the Newtown Crossroads from the east just before 10 a.m. There they watched what must have seemed to them a savory opportunity. Miles and miles of the Valley Pike were lined, as far as the eye could see, with Banks' wagons. Without question, Banks was attempting to pull back from Strasburg. The general quickly detached a courier to ride back to inform Jackson of the movement. Considering the time required for the information to reach Jackson and then for the commander to react, it would be impossible for Confederate infantry to strike the Valley Pike until at least 1 p.m. Stuart realized that his role must change from observer to aggressor. Until infantry arrived to support him, he could disrupt the wagon train with his cavalry. He gathered up his horse soldiers, and around 10 a.m. he charged his men upon the unsuspecting wagoners. The Confederate horsemen happened to charge upon the portion of the enemy column containing the Federal hospital train. The rebels had an easy time of it since the sick and wounded Yankees were helpless to defend themselves. Only one shot was reportedly fired during the brief melee. Daniel Derrickson, a 46-year-old private in Company B of the 66th Ohio, was the unfortunate recipient of that shot. The pistol ball struck him square in the face. A woman living in Newtown, aided by some of her neighbors, carried Derrickson into her house. Knowing his wound was mortal, Derrickson motioned for a piece of paper and then wrote his name and regiment to make sure his family was informed of his fate. He died minutes after scrawling the message. Faster than you can say, Bob's your uncle, most of Stewart's troopers had their hands full with the sick and wounded federal prisoners, and the remainder, now fewer than a hundred rebels, soon met swift resistance from Union cavalry charging toward the scene from north and south. Before the Federal cavalry rode into the rescue, though, was the moment when Stuart should have had his men ignore the sick and wounded Yankees, and instead he should have set them to work burning the several score of supply wagons that sat abandoned up and down the road. You see, within moments of the rebels' appearance, there was a panic amongst the Teamsters, many of whom were hired contrabands, who, understandably, feared being captured and returned to slavery. Many of those nearest to the point of the Confederate attack simply abandoned their wagons and fled in panic. If Stewart had immediately set his men to work burning the abandoned supply wagons en masse, the flaming vehicles would have blocked the turnpike and posed a serious obstacle to the passage of the rest of the Federal column. But Stuart failed to take advantage of this opportunity, and soon enough Federal cavalry arrived on the scene, followed by double-timing blue-clad infantrymen, and the Confederate horsemen were sent scampering back into the woods east of Newtown a little before noon.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time. And the show has a long name. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Stonewall Jackson took the news of Stewart's discovery at Newtown as evidence that Banks was in headlong flight for Winchester and probably strung out along the Valley Pike. On the strength of Stewart's report and this assumption, Stonewall decided to split his army. He ordered Ewell to stand fast near the hamlet of Nineveh, 12 miles from Winchester, with the brigades of Trimble and Elsie, while he took Taylor's Louisiana Brigade and lunged across the Chapel Road from Cedarville, hoping to sever Banks' vulnerable column at Middletown. The brigades of Campbell and Fulkerson, as well as the Stonewall Brigade, would fall in behind the Louisianans. Jedediah Hotchkiss and Turner Ashby led Jackson's vanguard as it advanced west along the Chapel Road. They quickly ran into Federal cavalrymen, troopers from Maine and Vermont, who slowly fell back toward Mid Middletown. The stubborn Yankee horse soldiers and their delaying action cost Stonewall two precious hours, time that was used by the Federal trains and infantry to continue their passage down the Valley Pike. Turner Ashby later characterized the resistance of the Union cavalry along the Chapel Road as, quote, stubborn as mules, end quote. Those Federal cavalrymen finally fell back to Middletown at about 2.30 p.m., where they learned that the trains and infantry had already passed through down the turnpike, along with Nathaniel Banks and Alpheus Williams and their staffs, but that Banks' cavalry commander, Brigadier General John Hatch, who had been given responsibility for the rear guard, should be along momentarily. Hatch did turn up before long there at Middletown, along with more Yankee cavalry constituting the rear guard, and about half an hour after that, the first Confederates appeared on the scene. Hotchkiss and Ashby led 100 hustling rebel infantrymen from the 8th Louisiana up to Middletown, 
along with Robert Chew's entire battery and two of William Pogue's rifled pieces. The Confederates appeared north of Middletown and so blocked the Federal horsemen's line of retreat down the Valley Pike. The rebel guns quickly deployed as the double-timing soldiers from the 8th Louisiana hurried into line behind a stone wall on the right side of the road. Hatch ordered a charge by the 1st Maine Cavalry, and down the pike went the Federal horsemen in column of fours. The Yankees covered just a 100 yards before the Louisianans behind the stone wall opened fire. Chew joined in with his cannon, as did Pogue with his rifled guns. The result was a terrible slaughter. In Company E of the 1st Maine, 61 horses were lost and 42 men. In Company M, 47 horses and 33 men were lost. And in Company A, 55 horses and 44 men. Some of the horses escaped unscathed and were impressed into Confederate service. Jedediah Hotchkiss recalled rounding up 60 or 70 first-rate mounts. Seeing the bloody tumble of men and horses, Henry Kai Douglas admitted he thought that, quote, It was a sickening sight, the worst I had ever seen, and for a moment I felt a twinge of regret, end quote. Stonewall Jackson, watching from a nearby piece of high ground, later wrote in his official report, quote, In a few moments the turnpike, which had just before teemed with life, presented a most appalling spectacle of carnage and destruction. The, the road was literally obstructed with the mingled and confused mass of struggling and dying horses and riders. Some of the surviving Federal horsemen fell back into Middletown, while others kept on along the turnpike, where they ran square into the rear of their own baggage train, which had gotten a late start from Strasburg. Southern shells hurried along the Yankee wagons. Captains Chew and Pogue had limbered up their guns after the surviving enemy cavalrymen had galloped out of range, and the southern cannon now took up a new position. Hotchkiss called Ashby's attention to the fact that a nearby bend in the road, quote, had placed the crowds of wagons that were on it in a line so that we could enfilade it. Ashby at once ordered the batteries to open on this double line of wagons with solid shot, which they did, giving them a raking fire for nearly a mile and throwing them into the wildest confusion. End quote. In his book on the Valley Campaign, Peter Cousins explains what happened next. He writes, quote, At that moment, Stonewall Jackson took charge. It was 4 p.m. and less than four hours of daylight remained. Time was of the essence if he were to catch Banks before dark, but Jackson had no way of knowing how much of Banks' wagon train had passed Middletown. Neither did he know the location of the Federal infantry. In short, Jackson had no idea at what point he had severed Banks' march column. Cousins continues, quote, His instinct was to head north and hope for the best, and in that spirit, he had the Reverend Dabney write the first message to Yule since the two generals had parted company that morning near Nineveh. It read, The enemy has retreated en masse toward Winchester. Major General Jackson requests that you will move on Winchester with all the force you have left as promptly as possible. No sooner had a courier left with the message than a clash of arms on the edge of Middletown suggested that Jackson had guessed wrong. At least a portion of the Yankee fighting force had been cut off south of the village, and so, as quickly as they marched into Middletown off the Chapel Road, Jackson turned his brigades toward Strasburg. 
He also had Dabney write Yule a second order at 4.30, requesting that he send Elsie's brigade to Middletown and suspending Yule's advance on Winchester until further notice. As you might guess, Stonewall Jackson had just made his worst decision of the entire Valley Campaign. The outbreak of firing to the south of Middletown caused Stonewall to second-guess his decision to head north on the turnpike. Now he must have thought there was a chance he had struck the middle of Banks' column, so he immediately ordered the vanguard of his force to turn southward. The arriving Confederate units dutifully complied, wheeling to the left as they exited the chapel road and reached the turnpike. Stonewall had no idea he was committing his army in the direction of a Union force that amounted to a mere five cannon, 50 artillerymen, 75 infantry, and scattered companies of blue-clad cavalry, but this was, in fact, merely the remnant of Banks' rear guard, which had been cut off south of Middletown. Hopeful but confused, Jackson, however, firmly believed he'd split Banks' column and had the singular opportunity to wreak havoc on a significant portion of it, cut off south of Middletown. So convinced was Stonewall of this that he had Reverend Dabney, his chief of staff, fire off that second message to Yule, telling Yule to suspend his movement toward Winchester and to send Elsie's brigade to Middletown. This order regarding Elsie confirms Stonewall's confusion, though, as to time and distance, since, at a minimum, Elsie wouldn't be able to arrive at Middletown until 10 o'clock that night, so Jackson's instructions make little sense on any level. Yule, for his part, had been holding in place for some nine hours, north of Nineveh, near a place called Double Tollgate, about nine miles south of Winchester on the Front Royal Winchester Turnpike. Yule agonized over not receiving any orders. There's no evidence that Jackson's first courier ever found Yule. That was the man sent off from Middletown with the 4 p.m. message telling Yule to march toward Winchester. But at 5.15, Jackson's second courier most certainly did find Yule with the instructions to hold his place and send Elsie's brigade back to Stonewall. Yule complied, although with only two hours of daylight remaining, it left him with only Trimble's brigade and the Maryland line. By quarter past five, Stonewall also had to be aware of the diminishing time to complete his operation before darkness. But he was still facing southward against what he believed to be a significant portion of Banks' column. By this time, however, he must have entertained some doubts. The Federal rear guard had offered some stout resistance, but by 5.30 the Yankees had started to withdraw westward, hoping to escape and eventually make their way to Winchester. As the Federals drew off, Stonewall realized he'd made a terrible mistake and had wasted precious time sparring with the Yankee rear guard. Stonewall's blunder gave Banks valuable hours to complete his retreat to Winchester. At 5.45, Jackson finally wheeled about and started his men northward on the Valley Turnpike in a belated pursuit of Banks' column. He also had Reverend Dabney send a third message to Ewell. This one said, quote, Major General Jackson requests that you will at once move with all your force on Winchester. End quote. 
It would require close to 90 minutes for that message to reach Yule. Unaware that those instructions to advance would reach him after sunset, Yule continued to fret as he idled at double tollgate. The time passed six o'clock, and it was ten hours since Yule halted his division along the front royal Winchester turnpike, and during that time his division, with Elsie's departure, had been reduced to five regiments and one battalion, barely two thousand men. As daylight continued to slip away, Yule's patience finally snapped, and he decided to advance on Winchester without orders. Stonewall had given him a direct order to halt in place, however, and disobeying a direct order from Jackson was a risky proposition, but Yule couldn't bear to sit, twiddling his thumbs, any longer. Fifteen minutes after he gave the order to march, Yule's good judgment was confirmed, though, when the courier arrived with Stonewall's instructions to advance on Winchester. Yule's men reached the outskirts of Winchester at 10 p.m. Along a hilltop three and a half miles southeast of town, his lead regiment, the 21st North Carolina, ran into Yankee pickets. In the dark, the Federals slowly fell back until, at a point just over a mile south of Winchester, they stopped the Confederate advance. The opposing lines, neither knowing the strength of the other, traded fire until midnight, and then both sides settled down in the darkness to rest in place or try to steal an occasional moment of sleep. At least Yule's men were able to rest in place or grab a bit of sleep. The men with Jackson, however, were on the move, marching and fighting from the time Stonewall turned them north at Middletown until nearly dawn on May 25th. Jackson believed he was in a foot race with Banks, and so he would push his foot-sore troops to the brink of exhaustion and beyond. Stonewall would push his men because he hoped at least to seize the chain of hills that stood a half-mile southwest of Winchester before morning. At 5.45 p.m., as the Stonewall Brigade led the way north out of Middletown, 12 miles of turnpike and a determined Yankee rear guard stood between Jackson and his objective. Charles Winder started the Stonewall Brigade off at a grueling double-quick time. Campbell's Brigade came next, then Fulkerson and Taylor's Louisianans brought up the rear. Generals Banks and Williams approached Winchester about sundown, and Banks turned his attention to his imperiled rear. He ordered Colonel George H. Gordon to take his 2nd Massachusetts, along with the 28th New York and some artillery, and go back to form a new rear guard. Backtracking along the turnpike, Gordon, two miles south of Newtown, found Colonel Silas Calgrove deploying the 27th Indiana across the Valley Pike to check the Confederate advance. Who ordered Calgrove there is uncertain, but just as they were falling back, hard-pressed by Jackson's vanguard, the 2nd Massachusetts appeared in a field north of them. After an, un an unfortunate friendly fire incident in which the Bay Staters sent a volley toward the Hoosiers, things were sorted out, and the 27th retired down the turnpike and left the 2nd Massachusetts and 28th New York to handle the advancing rebels. By this time, though, the Confederates were feeling their way forward, slowly in the darkness. Ashby and a handful of his cavalrymen led the march. Pogue's battery followed, then Stonewall and his staff rode ahead of the infantry. 
Suddenly, out of the darkness, some of the Second Massachusetts delivered a volley, this time aimed at the enemy, and Ashby's frightened troopers went galloping pell-mell past Pogue and his guns and headlong into Stonewall and Charles Winder and their staffs. The panicked cavalrymen nearly trampled Jackson and Winder and continued on, causing confusion amongst the ranks of the 33rd Virginia. The rest of the Stonewall Brigade deployed for action, though. Before the rebels could deliver their assault, however, the Federals pulled back. They then conducted a stubborn withdrawal down the turnpike, through the darkness, using nearly every stone wall and fence line to deliver a volley at the Confederates. After finally breaking contact with their pursuers, Gordon's rear guard stumbled into Winchester at 2 a.m. Meanwhile, Stonewall had elected to play it safe. He knew that the 5th Virginia had been recruited in Winchester, so he ordered it to the front. Next, he called for Captain George Kurtz, who had spent his life in the area. Jackson told Kurtz to take a company and move down the turnpike toward Winchester, telling Kurtz that if he moved cautiously, he could drive in all the Yankee pickets he encountered. Every time Kurtz encountered a spot where the soldiers of the Yankee rear guard had taken position between behind a wall or fence, he sent word back to Jackson, who with Winder was walking only a short distance behind. Each time the answer was the same. Jackson would say, Captain, move cautiously. I am confident you can drive in every picket. In that way, the Confederate Army inched forward through the night toward Winchester, but the men in the ranks were literally dropping from exhaustion. Dozens collapsed and fell instantly asleep every time a halt was called. At 3 a.m., the Army had reached a point just north of Kernstown. By that time, the plain-spoken Colonel Fulkerson had had enough. Stepping out of the darkness, he told Stonewall, frankly, that the general must either grant the army rest, or he would have nothing more than a skirmish line left by dawn. Jackson tried to reason with Fulkerson, saying that after what the colonel had endured from the Yankee batteries on Pritchard's Hill two months earlier, he must surely understand the importance of seizing the high ground first. Reaching the hills overlooking Winchester tonight, Jackson said, would save lives in the morning. That was right enough, conceded Fulkerson, but it no longer mattered. The army was in no condition to take another step forward. Realizing that what Fulkerson said was true, Stonewall yielded. The men would have two hours sleep. And so on May 24th, Nathaniel Banks had won the race to Winchester. Stonewall hadn't been able to take advantage of the golden opportunity that existed on Saturday to destroy the Federals while they were retreating from Strasburg. Jackson's poor use of Ewell's force had been a costly mistake, and then his decision to turn southward at Middletown had cost him valuable time, and all of Stonewall's missteps on Saturday gave Banks the chance to complete his withdrawal to Winchester. But as Jackson's tired army finally halted to rest, just southwest of their objective, and as Ewell's men grabbed what sleep they could as they slept on their arms southeast of town, and as Banks' Federals in Winchester prepared for what the next day would bring, the stage is now set for the Battle of Winchester, which will take place on Sunday, May 25, 1862. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Jackson's Valley Campaign, 
November 1861 to June 1862, by David G. Martin. This is part of Combined Books' Great Campaigns of Military History series. And one interesting feature of books in this series is the number of sidebars that contain information on some of the personalities or units or weapons or even the geography of the area uh, and some of them aren't really sidebars, but are a couple or several pages in length. Uh, for example, a few of the ones in this book cover Turner Ashby, uh, Stonewall's Faith, Stonewall's Staff, uh, and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, and there are probably a dozen or so others. Uh, so all really interesting stuff to supplement the main narrative. Anyway, that's Jackson's Valley Campaign. November 1861 to June 1862 by David G. Martin. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Several of you made your way to the website this past week in order to sign up for the Strawfoot Brigade. Kevin, Devin, and James, thank you. Thank you also to Jamie D. in Baltimore for your very generous donation. That went towards some books we've had on our wish list for a while. All right, and we'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, performed by Spiritwood Music. And besides Midnight on the Water, they also have lots of other great songs that we think you'd enjoy. And you can find their music on iTunes or at Amazon, or you can go to their website, which is spiritwoodmusic.com. Okay, and with that, we'll say thanks to each of you for tuning in to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us next time for episode 150, when we'll cover the Battle of Winchester. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.